Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where our goal is to help you find health and community through movement. I'm Molly Herford, a writer, coach, and yoga teacher. And I'm Peter Glassford, an endurance coach and kinesiologist. Every week, we're talking to athletes and experts who can help you lead your best active, adventurous life. Whether you're a gravel racer, a marathon runner, or you just got out on your first bike ride yesterday, we're here cheering you on. You can also visit us online at consummateathlete.com for coaching information and training tips, nutrition advice, yoga flows, bike skills, and more. And now, let's get into this week's episode. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. We are here with a super quick intro because it is the holiday week. We are very busy celebrating, but of course we still wanted to drop into the the podcast sphere and yeah, put out an episode with one of our favorite guests that we've had on. Uh, we have Alex Coates. She is a former ITU pro triathlete um, turned PhD candidate in exercise physiology. She coaches triathlon. Uh, and she is honestly one of my favorite people we've had on the show. We got so much feedback on the episode we had her on talking about Red S a, almost a year ago now. Yeah. Yeah. And she's doing you know some great research. She's up to date on the research. And then she's enthusiastic too, which I like. You know, it's always someone who's, you know, just excited about the topic area, right? And sharing the knowledge. I think my favorite, yeah, my favorite thing is she has sort of every level of expert we want to bring on, right? She's done the sport. She does the sport. Like she's still an active person, but she's competed at the highest level. Um, she's actually, you know, in the lab researching this stuff as we speak mm -hmm. um, and, and, and she's coaching. And I think this topic is very, as I like to say, nebulous, right? It's, it's hard to, uh, you know, simplify it for people because I don't even know if we understand it to that level, right? But, you know, it, it's beyond just saying like, this is when you don't eat enough, you right? Like this is, mm -hmm. you know short and long term there's consequences my other favorite part about her is she gets to kind of double blind everything because she has an identical twin who also is oh, a triathlete yes yeah so it's my like personal favorite thing is as when i'm talking to a researcher so we'll link to the previous time we had alex on and, and we have a few other uh, episodes that are probably if you're if you want to go deep on this underfueling red s you know we'll, we'll link to a few of those different uh episodes um, but this one in particular, you had Alex back on because there's been some new research. Yeah, there's been new research and just new reviews of old research coming out. There's this big question that's been kind of going around around overtraining and underfueling, and if they're the same thing, if they're different, like what are the signs and symptoms of either? How do they relate to each other? Um, and that's been really interesting. It's something like Alex has been, you know, reading a lot of like reading up on as the new reviews have come out. Um, she has a lot of really cool stuff going on in her lab that we talk about, um, especially as far as even carbohydrates go and some some interesting uh, glucose monitoring stuff. Not that she's saying that everyone needs to right. get the continuous right. glucose monitor, but just some some stuff that's coming out from like doing experiments. Well, because with as stuff. I recall from the previous episode, is you know the carbohydrates might be like a, a really key piece to this fueling, right? If we're if we're really low on that chronically. Um, you know, then you end up with maybe some of these symptoms of overtraining despite having, yeah. even if you're, you know, having lots of protein or something. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Which I think is super, super interesting. Hmm. Uh, so we talk about that a lot and we also just talk about kind of an honest, I, I'm going to say it's two of us women who've been in sport for a really long time, having this really honest conversation about body image and how it relates to body composition as athletes and, you know, how how to kind of navigate that that well, territory with red s being a thing with performance being a metric but also just as women in in the world and this is the the nebulous piece right is it's it's well you just eat more 
but then it's there's a lot of reasons you might not right like you're not able to at some point it's a lot of food right um and then there's certainly this body image piece or this uh you know now this power to weight idea is you know and no one hears the power part we just hear the Mm -hmm. weight part right so we have you know young athletes uh you know and this is going down a rabbit hole but with the the zwift is everywhere right this indoor training every young athlete now knows you know what they weigh and and what their power to weight is right and yeah exactly they know that if you drop the weight you you go faster on zwift right yeah yeah exactly which that's, <laughs> yeah, that's so it's, definitely it's great, the, so. the thing uh yeah and i mean it's and there's also the health piece you know we talk about performance all the time on here but this is something you and i have been discussing together too is you know there is the the healthy side of eating and there's kind of this weird balance between fueling the the athletic performance with sort of just all of the carbs all of the calories but then also eating healthy for sort of a long-term uh, overall health. Well, and I think when we back out to this, you know, 20 years, you know, whatever an athletic career might be, right? It could be certainly, we hope that, you know, if we believe the the narrative around, you know, active for life, healthy for life, you know, athletes for life, whatever you want to say, you know, from six years old, four years old to 89 years old and beyond, right? We know that you have to be there, right? The, the key to success is being there and being consistent, right? So it's this starting at age 10, knowing your power to weight and, and the weight side of that not great right versus fueling and and just being able to show up and practice the skills and be in the environment have fun imagine that right yeah yeah so it's tricky and it's nebulous as i as i like to say yeah so i'm not going to say this episode has a ton of answers in it but (laughs) But i think it updates it will get a lot of people thinking yeah we have some research updates and i think just heading into the new year as everyone tends to set some body composition goals or weight loss goals around new year's just kind of out of habit we'll say Uh, i think it is a good conversation to listen to and just kind of reflect on as you're thinking through and maybe yeah shifting just a reminder that you could shift you know again it might be the power side of the power to weight right or fueling every work i know that's one of alex's i think rules even with some of the athletes she works with is you know we do fueled workouts and that's what my dietitian and i discussed is every workout i do now if i'm out for over 45 minutes like i'm fueling it yeah even the strength training ones if you're an endurance athlete right it's like oh that doesn't count as a workout because it's strength training you know what how do we think about that yeah Hmm. Okay, anyway. well, that's good. Let's let Alex tell us more about Red S. All right, enjoy this episode. Alex Coates, welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm so excited we're here. Thank you for having me again. I'm so excited to be back. Oh my gosh, I feel like last time we talked, we had so many good questions and stuff that came and conversations that came out of that chat. So I'm stoked to have you back. So, I mean, first thing, I feel like last time we talked, you were doing so many different projects that were all, you know, related, but you just had so much going on. So what do you, what have you been up to lately? It's funny because when I think back to that time, I was like, oh, I was so relaxed then. <laughs> I'm so busy right now. Um same, th- same thing, just too many projects on the go. Um, so since we got back into the lab following kind of our COVID lockdown, um, I started working back on my third thesis project. And so my thesis is all on exercise-induced cardiac fatigue. And so this thesis project is looking at whether high-intensity intervals more like sprint intervals, to be honest, is drives um, cardiac fatigue to a greater degree than prolonged endurance exercise. And so I'm looking at like sprints versus three hours of biking at like a steady pace. Okay. Um, so now yeah. what would the, what would sort of the, the thesis be for athletes or like, what would the like actionable thing be for athletes with that? Because yeah, I mean, we should not- be doing sprints or. It's, it's like one of those things where it's almost like, 
it's novel to think of your heart getting tired at all, you know, like, and I mean, there's still some debate as to whether or not it's even occurring or if it's just like less blood is getting it back to the heart. Um, but it like from my research, it looks like your heart is getting tired following um, these like really prolonged or really intense exercise bouts. Um, but whether it's something to be worried about, it's kind of probably not, you know, it's more just like your, your muscles get tired in general. And so it's not really something I think that we have to worry about. Um, it's just something that is occurring and, you know, you'll get stronger and you'll, you'll adapt to it. I do have the hypothesis that the high, high intensity stuff will drive cardiac fatigue more than prolonged exercise. And that will be cool I think if that's what I find because the literature so far is just surrounding prolonged exercise so we're looking at like the ultra marathons and the you know Ironman triathlons and stuff and they will say that it occurs to a greater degree the longer the race but I looked at different durations of ultra marathon running we found the same degree of cardiac fatigue following you know 25k 50k 80k and 160k and there seemed to be an effect of heart rate such that people who exercised at higher intensities for themselves um, had more, more cardiac fatigue. So that's why now we're doing these sprint intervals and we'll see what happens. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I'm a, it's, I think I, I feel like I've seen a lot of stuff done lately on the like 160K people. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think about that kind of research being done and then like applied to the general population. So it's always such an interesting thing where like people are like, ah, ultra runners. And you're like, no, this was like five people who did a hundred miles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's such a unique situation when you're studying ultra marathon runners. Um, you know, cause it, even if you took the same person and you studied them following a different race, you'd probably get different results because it's, you know, dependent on the conditions and what they ate and how they pace themselves and whether they got, you know, GI issues and like the whole bit. So I feel like, yeah, attributing kind of any sort of exercise findings to the general population from an ultra marathon event is not really, I don't know, not like it's, it's easier to do something like say an Ironman where um, I feel like the conditions are a bit more similar, you know, like, it's like, if you're going into an Ironman race, unless it's like pouring rain in one race and hot, hot, hot in another, um, you know, you can kind of compare it's like same distances, tons of people are doing it. You're going to have bigger groups. Um, whereas with these ultras that are like, you know, 30 hours of running, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's a lot different than eight hours. Right. So yeah, yeah, exactly. I, yeah, it's just one of those interesting things that I've been noticing in more and more headlines lately where it's like study shows ultra runners like X, Y, Z. But then when you actually look at it, it's like, no, this was done on five people who did a hundred mile or not like thousands who did a 50 K or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting when we can get a researcher on to actually like kind of break down some of these, like how to read these studies a little bit more critically. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, And on that note, I mean, have you seen any cool studies or research coming out lately that you've been particularly like clicking through to see what's, what's going on? Yeah. So another study that I've been working on, um, is we're 
we're using the new continuous glucose monitors. So I don't know if you've heard of like super sapiens. Goodness. This is okay. This is interesting. This is like, we're getting into the, the topic that Peter and I debate all the time of like, how, how much of a robot can you turn yourself into? And is it a good thing? And I think this is so interesting. Mm -hmm. So we are going to be one of the first groups to get some studies out on this, on the super sapiens sensors. Um, and yeah, we basically, so this first little study that we're going to get out and like here, I don't know how much I'm allowed to actually talk about, but whatever. Um, it's basically going to just look at how the sensors line up with blood glucose or finger prick capillary glucose uh, following different conditions. So during an incremental exercise bout, um, during muscle stim. So we, we actually have the sensors placed like one on the leg, one on the arm, and then and then doing the finger pricks. And so we're just kind of getting at what are the differences between these different locations where we're sampling from. So one is capillary blood and one is interstitial fluid. So the blood is gonna have a lot more flow and the interstitial fluid, which is where your, your continuous glucose sensors are, is gonna be a bit slower to respond. Um, and But then we have the different placements. We have like leg, which is when you're biking or muscle stem and arm, when you're, you know, just for every day kind of wear. And so, yeah, it's really neat because this study just came out um, and they found, so they they were looking at arm sensor versus finger, uh, finger prick capillary glucose. And they found that during exercise, there was kind of a big difference between the two locations. And they found that after eating a high carbohydrate, breakfast that there was quite a lot of difference there and so they recommended that they think that the sensors aren't that good for um exercise if you're going to be yeah using them for monitoring your own glucose levels right Mm -hmm. but my thinking is it's not so much that they're not good it's just how do you read them because it's like it's a little bit delayed which we already knew, like, I think that's not new for anyone, like anyone with diabetes would know that the sensors and interstitial fluid sensor is going to be delayed and it's going to be thrown off when you take in a lot of glucose at once. Um, But it's like, if you can kind of calibrate it for yourself to what, you know, what does a finger glucose reading look like when the arm is looking like this, you know, right. That out for yourself, then I think it still has its use. It's just like, shifted <laughs> interesting interesting mm-hmm. okay so two questions first of all, have you used one of these monitors have you tried it yeah, yeah okay. I was in my own study for that yeah nice nice how mm-hmm. does it feel like is it really does it take getting used to having it in it's so funny because uh like initially when my supervisor was actually putting it on me I was I was nervous and you can't you can't feel anything when it goes in. So that's good. Um, the ones on the leg, which isn't what people normally do. Those ones can, you can feel it a bit more, especially if you get it right in a muscle belly, um, then it'll burn. And so you don't really want that. You want to get it kind of in between like in a fatty spot or in between some muscles, I guess. So we do like inner leg <laughs> basically. Um, they, they don't feel like anything. The biggest issue is just trying not to like accidentally rip them off. So if you kind of like putting on clothes or um, walking through doors and stuff, it, you don't want to just like accidentally rip it off. But other than that, like, honestly, it's like you forget about it, but it's really fun to have the data all the time on your phone. And it's just, it's kind of a fun experience. Mm-hmm. Did you notice uh, wearing it? Did you like 
shift anything or change anything or how did, how did I it go? I became <laughs> hyper aware of like when I would eat, I don't know, treats, I guess, because mm-hmm. it would really spike the glucose. And so I think for people who are having trouble, you know, with their relationship with food, I would suggest not using it um, because yeah, you do become like not during exercise, but like around exercise or if you eat like, like one day I ate Oreos and then <laughs> my glucose was going insane. So I was like running around the house trying to like see what would happen if I could get it to go down. And like, I was doing like marches and stuff, which I feel like is just not healthy. So <laughs> I think, yeah, if, if there's any sort of, you know, in, yeah, relationships with food that aren't good, then I would say stay away from them. Yeah. Which I think is maybe like where my fear for it comes in, because I think Mm -hmm. most people who get them probably we can argue maybe have a less than stellar relationship with it. But if you can just look at it as information, then like by all means, Mm -hmm. super, super interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, no, it's funny. I have the same exact thing happen when, even if I'm just recording what I eat for like my fitness pal or something, if I'm trying to get a snapshot of what I eat in a day, the second I can start seeing those calories just go up, even if I'm like still well under where I need to be by the end of the day, you just see that number go up and maybe it's just being a woman who was raised with like, you know, women's day magazine being like 1500 calories a day is a reasonable (laughs) amount. Um, that's just like these numbers are in your head. So when your breakfast is 1500 calories, even though, you know, you should be eating like 4,000, you're still like, (gasps) exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then you like manipulate it. You're like, well, maybe this wasn't quite as much. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. I've totally played the rationalizing my, my fitness pal game. That was only like one and a half potatoes that wasn't too full but definitely not definitely not you're like trying to drop it by like grams and yeah it's yeah it's not a good it's not a good look here (laughs) no exactly that's why I don't like any kind of food monitoring in general just gets in your head Mm -hmm. Um, but these centers are fun to play with like during exercise and everything um just because, yeah, if you do a very high intensity session, you're going to see your glucose spike just from the like sympathetic activity, which is kind of neat. And then you can watch like it stop spiking a bit by, by the end of the session. And I don't know, it's just neat to see how your body responds. And like some foods are going to cause a spike and others just kind of it goes up a little, but not much. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it's kind of just fun getting that feedback for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Now. I'm, I'm not like completely up on how exactly they work. Would it be able to tell me when I'm like on the lower end and need to start taking in more? Because that's, I mean, mine would just start beeping from like minute, like five. I feel like (laughs) tell me the whole time, like Molly, please eat more, please eat more. Well, it's it's because the way they're being marketed is to, I think, prevent hypoglycemia during very long events, but your body's very good at protecting yourself from that. So it's almost like by the time you're going to see a big, like you're critically low, you're already going to know that you're bombed, you know, (laughs) you're already going to wish that you had been taking food in. So I feel like, although that is what is kind of being marketed as the primary purpose, I don't think that's going to be their primary use in the end, just because like, you'll see athletes, you know, doing long sessions and their blood glucose is staying within range the whole time. And it's not, and it's fluctuating. It's not fluctuating enough to give you that feedback of like, Oh, I should eat now. You know, 
in your day to day, though, it'll you'll see it drop down when you're not eating. And so you can kind of get used to that in terms of um, like, yeah, eating throughout the day where I think most of the like utility is going to come from is probably like overnight glucose, looking back at your data and seeing if you went really low overnight or what your waking fasted glucose is. Cause I think that's going to tell you if you were fueled, if you were recovering, you know, if you're fueled enough after your sessions and then overnight. Um, so I think there's going to be some use there. And then we're also going to try, and this is going to be coming down the pipeline. We're going to try and do a big um, overtraining and like, training monitoring study and look to see if we could use the sensors to basically predict phases of overreaching um, just by the way your body handles glucose. Oh, that's super interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So with that, you mentioned the, the fasteds, like the glucose levels in the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, I know. So what, I guess, what, what would like low indicate and what would high indicate versus like just right. So low, if it's actually like sub four millimoles, which I can't even remember what that would be in, in the units that the super savings gives you, but um, it, it, there's like a little critical line there. So it's easy to see if you woke up and you were below that line, you, and if it was happening consistently, you could be pretty sure that you were in a state of low energy availability. So you were not eating enough and chances are not enough carbs. Um, that because that is one of the markers of low energy availability is a low fasting glucose. So yeah. And then if it was high, I, I really don't think it would be. Like I feel like if it was high, that would only be in cases of people with diabetes. Um, if it was like above where you were really expecting it to be. Mm-hmm. I feel like, like the body's very good at regulating glucose. Um until it's not, I guess, with diabetes, but, um, up until, you know, when you're, when you're relatively healthy and exercising a lot, um, you probably would never wake up with a high glucose. Okay. Yeah. And now I guess the, the other thing, my other thought on that, I don't know why I'm like digging into this, but I I find it, I guess it's because we just got blood work done. So we did get like the fasting glucose. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting. Now, there's also like the time from like when you stopped eating at night, I know it's like, usually mm-hmm. like we had to do like 12 hours, but mm-hmm. like I ate literally up until like the 12 hour, mark. The 12 hours. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so is, is like, it, what, what should our like quote unquote fasting window be here? That's a good question. So I've just been doing like eight hours, um, not 12. And I have seen some literature where they say, you only need seven. Okay. So I'm sure like for proper, like oral glucose tolerance test type situation, it's probably supposed to be closer to 12. So that's a good point for my own research. Um, but in general, yeah, it's like just a proper overnight fast. And, um, you know, I think once you're past like an eight hour mark, it's like, you're fully, you're fully fasted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we should just underscore for when we're talking about, uh, you know, fasted training and stuff, our bodies do clear themselves out pretty efficiently, fairly quickly. Um, Yeah. yeah. Um, well, so I had a couple different directions I wanted to go, but I think we're, we're kind of into this, this idea of like the underfueling over training. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like everyone is talking about this right now. If, especially like if the two things are kind of the same thing, Mm -hmm. um, 
And I think also just the, you might be, you might have some thoughts on this too, the, the rhetoric around, I think with men, we tend to go with it's overtraining and women it's under fueling and it's red S. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Good oh. observation there. Uh, yeah. yeah. Thoughts, feelings. Are we finally talking about this stuff enough? Are they the same mm-hmm. thing? What do you think? I have so many thoughts and feelings. Um, <laughs> okay. So I, I guess just to start with the sex differences, what you said there, honestly, that is reflected in the literature such that like, if you're looking at overtraining literature, it's pretty much all on men. And if you're looking at low energy availability reds, it's all on women. So it's funny because it's like, we're saying these things, but it's because that's all that we've tested you know like we're like oh women always have reds and it's like because we don't test men yeah <laughs> and exactly. women always have all training because we don't test women um so yeah and i think that it i mean there is evidence that women will see the kind of detrimental consequences of low energy availability earlier than men so you're gonna see like the decreased hormones and kind of maybe underperformance and all that in women when they're not eating enough earlier than men, maybe just because their hormones are a bit more robust and also men have stronger bone mineral density to begin with, or like thicker right. bones to begin with. So, you know, when women, when you're gonna see stress fractures, it'll happen earlier just cause they have less bones mass to begin with. Um, so there is that, but that's not to say that men don't get reds because they certainly do, um, we're just, haven't been looking into it as much. Now, whether or not the two conditions are the same thing. So <laughs> I think part of the reason why there's so much discussion about this right now is a big um, narrative review came out by a very important group. So Trent Stenworth and um, Margot Mountjoy and Ida and um, I think Louise Burke might have been on it. So, and Romaine Musin. So these are big, big names in the whole um, overtraining and Reds sides of the they're research. like the like rolling stones of yes. like this community yes yeah. exactly so they wrote a narrative review which is a narrative review isn't it's not the same thing as a systematic review where you go through all the literature and you look for common themes or a meta-analysis where you're like running stats on these things it's it's more of a um opinion review so taking into account all the literature but then forming your own opinions on it okay so that's kind of important to point out the distinction and so in this big review they found that um most overtraining studies are actually misdiagnosed reds um so (laughs) not all of them but but many studies that have been looking at overtraining syndrome could we're likely looking at reds because when you do the math on how many calories they burned and then what they, the athletes were probably taking in, it's not enough. And so their theory is that most, yeah, most overtraining type research papers um, were driven by low energy availability. So that's interesting. Um, and the, I guess the common thing that people are throwing out is they say overtraining syndrome is reds now i disagree and even in that paper so even in the paper itself it doesn't say that it says that it overtraining syndrome is often misdiagnosed reds but it doesn't say that it that they are the same thing or that um overtraining syndrome is always actually reds right 
And then myself and um, my colleague, Megan Kikman in my lab, we have a review that is a systematic review of meta-analysis that's under review right now, where we looked at all studies where they measured performance following a training block at least two weeks in length and measured at least two markers of low energy availability. So we're trying to see that intersection there. And we found it was more like 50-50 split. So you'll see studies where um, people had markers of low energy availability and they were underperforming after their training block. And then you'll see studies where um, athletes were had decreased performance, but no markers of low energy availability. And then you'll see studies where you have low energy availability and people improve their performance. So mm. basically it's the full spectrum. And so it was like, it was like seven studies on one side, seven studies in the middle, 11 studies on the other side. And then there was like 32 studies that with, with training, nothing happened kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to see like all of the different angles of it. And so to me, and now like, once again, Overtraining syndrome and relative energy deficiency in sport. These are like the most extreme ends of the spectrum. And so right. what we were looking at was just the early phases. So if you train for over two weeks, but under a year. And so it was like most of the studies were around six weeks long for training blocks. If you do that kind of a overload training block, what's, what's going to happen. And, and we found that, yeah, it could be, it could be anything right? (laughs) Could it be any of those like four states essentially? And so I'm just not convinced that you can say that underperformance is always caused by low energy availability. I think it can be caused by many other things, including just the stress of training. Um, Yeah. And then of course, there's going to be the case where you're not eating enough. And so you underperform as well, but there's also the case of you could not eat enough and for a period of time perform better. So yeah. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if that answers if that no. just makes it more complicated, but it does. It it answers the question, but it complicates things. Yeah. yeah. So I guess maybe my my next question is like, in in your opinion, how do we how do we decide which one we're in mm-hmm. if we're if we're trying to like figure out which which one is more likely for why we're not feeling at the top of our game here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's. A number of markers for um, low energy availability that like blood markers and stuff that you could go look for that shouldn't, that I don't believe are um, overtraining related, like they are from not eating enough. And so that would be, and so yeah, that would be if you start losing your period or your period starts becoming more irregular, that's usually an energy deficiency. Um, any sort of bone issues is usually an energy deficiency. Like you could have biomechanics, you know, kind of issues, but in general, if you're getting stress reactions and stress fractures, it's because of energy availability. And then kind of a whole host of blood markers. So the the big ones and the ones that change the fastest are going to be leptin, IGF-1. So that's insulin like insulin like growth factor I might have to look at one um and then you yeah like I said before you may have low fasting glucose um you'll have increased cortisol you'll have low t3 um you can have low iron you can have increased kind of like um 
white blood cell markers and stuff. So just kind of stress, stressful state kind of markers. So basically if you went and got a blood test and it doesn't even have to be like a super specific blood test, just kind of like a general blood test, some things likely will, will pop up in the, you know, negative range. Um, and that would be usually indicative of low energy availability. Mm-hmm. Now with overtraining, you can look for symptoms like exercising heart rate. So it's kind of fun. I think overtraining, overtraining, like overreaching type stuff is fun because say you're doing, <laughs> say you're doing Super like, fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's fun to be so tired. Um, if you're doing like a standardized warm up or any type of um, exercise where it's above 70%, between like 70% and, and 100% of your effort, your heart rate for a given load will be about 10 beats per minute lower than what it usually is when you're actually in a state of overreaching. And your heart rate will, will drop faster when you stop exercise. Um, so you really get this feeling of you can't push in a session. So to me that they are different enough that it's like, on one hand, you have these kind of hormonal and just systemic markers that are showing that your body can't recover, you're not taking in enough fuel. And then on the overreaching side and overtraining side, it's just like your nervous system is telling you like, I'm not doing this today. And so mm-hmm. your heart rate is suppressed. You can't push, you can't sprint. Your lactate is actually, exercising lactate is suppressed. And you know, you'd have to get finger pricks to test that. But it's basically like, you don't even, it's not even like your body is in pain when you're exercising. You just physically can't go there. Mm-hmm. And I think we've talked about this last time you're on, but that's not always necessarily a, a bad thing. Like overreaching is something we actually like need to do in training at some points if we're you know, going for performance. I would say it's like you want to avoid getting to the point where you have this suppression in heart rate, but you do want to push yourself to a phase of what we call acute fatigue. So you feel tired, you feel like you've pushed yourself really hard, but if a gun was to your head, you could still perform. Whereas if you get to the point where your heart rate is depressed and you can't perform, even though you really want to, um, then that is, I think it's kind of overkill because right. you'll probably take longer to recover from that. Sure. So then you won't get to train as much. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Perfect. Um, mm-hmm. And you mentioned iron. Here's my question. Do you think uh, like, re- like, do you think women who run a lot or like exercise a lot, do you think we can ever stay on top of iron? <laughs> Is it possible? Oh my gosh. I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's possible. Like the, there are of course some women who just have naturally genetically high iron. Um, even if that were the case though, it's important to check your hemoglobin too, because there are cases where you have high enough iron and then you just of low hemoglobin so important to check that um but yeah it's so hard as a as a woman and as an athlete to keep your iron up i found that you know supplements just don't work like you can you can take them you should take them if you have low iron it'll help but like it's just so slow acting and you know like i know that as an elite athlete um there are some athletes who are getting iron infusions at hospitals and then some athletes that, or myself, I got an iron injection when I was severely anemic before world championships in Auckland. And I was just, you know, hoping it would work in time. And I think it 
helped. It was about, it was only like two weeks out or something. And so the doctors were like, this is not going to work in time. And I was like, well, I can't finish this race. So like, let's try. Well, I need the placebo effect. If yeah, nothing else. Let's so. try. And I honestly think it did help uh, because otherwise I don't think it would have finished the race. So yeah, I think to your point, it's so, so hard. I think that it's one of the reasons too, why it's very hard as a high I don't want to say high performing, but like high volume, high training, um, female athlete. If you are vegan, then you're going to run into this problem even more because it's not just iron. It's going to be like your B12 and your choline and all of, um, these nutrients that are coming from red meat that, that will help keep your blood, your red blood cells healthy. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting. I've heard, I think we've had probably like 10 vegan ultra runners on the podcast somehow. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the correlation <laughs> is with vegans and ultra running, but it, apparently, yeah. it exists. Um, and mm -hmm. I think all of them have always pointed out that they have great blood work. And I think it's mm -hmm. really important to note that like they're individuals who mm -hmm. probably are genetically, like you said, predisposed mm -hmm. to that high iron. Um, mm -hmm. so I think that like, to equate, well, my blood work is great. So therefore vegan Everyone's women, ultra runners are going to be just no problems. It's just kind of a dangerous road to, to go down. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think it's why it's like, I mean, of course we'll have these debates with doctors about getting blood tests, blood work done um, and whether or not it's a drain on the system and everything, but it's like, it's so important to know how your own, like, body reacts to things or like you know I know for myself I'm always at risk of being anemic and so I don't want to cut out red meat and I also don't I can't go give blood and stuff because I will become so anemic I won't be able to exercise so then it's like you know it's just good to know yourself and have yeah. that Exactly. Exactly. And I've been, I've been amazed at how much it changes over time. Like we had just, mm -hmm. we just got blood work done last week and my iron is tanked. I'll be it's honest. Cool. Yeah. So we're working on it and like, mm -hmm. I eat red meat. It's not like mm -hmm. I don't, um, mm -hmm. you know, I've had phases in my life where I've been vegan and I don't even know what my iron was then. I'm kind of like mm -hmm. afraid to think back. Oh, that's <laughs> why I was tired all the time. Weird. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things where a couple of years ago, I didn't have that issue. My training was slightly different, but it's just that little bit of change and just getting a bit older and like yeah. your body changes, your lifestyle yeah. changes, whether you realize it or not. So I think that the regular blood work is, is huge. Mm -hmm. um, now you mm -hmm. mentioned supplements and I wanted to get yeah. this. I wanted to get this from, from someone who has been an elite athlete, who's some, someone who coaches, someone who does the research. How do we, how do we figure out what supplements to take and like, can you just kind of speak to the risks of taking supplements? I mean, in the mm -hmm. U.S., we had one of our top athletes, like of all time in cycling, just test positive. No. Um, as someone who is like very passionate about anti-doping, and mm -hmm. you know, the likelihood was it was supplement related. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> it's a scary yeah. thing. My like when I was when I was being tested and I was on the blood passport and everything, um, my go-to was just you only take what you absolutely have to take so that would be like iron um some for some people maybe like vitamin d um and 
like if you're going to get a protein powder, it definitely has to have the NSF stamp on it, the safety, you know, it's been tested stamp on it um, because any sort of one of these like performance enhancing supplements, they are going to be what, what test positive or something very like herbal, you know, with a billion ingredients that you have no idea where they're coming from. Those ones will, could, you know, be a risk as well. So for me, yeah, when I was worried about that, I wasn't taking any like cold medications, any drugs at all, unless they had the stamp on them. And then I was taking iron supplements from basically like the best kind of companies I could find. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also websites and I can't remember exactly what it's called anymore, but um, you can check like if, if it has a DIN number, I think is what it's called. You can check and and it'll say whether or not it's approved, whether or not it's safe. Yeah. And I think that's a good idea because it me like, even if you're not an elite athlete who is getting tested, (laughs) checking that it is approved for that use means that it's been third-party tested and Mm -hmm. actually contains what it says it does. Like the, the, you know, vitamins you're going to get like Dollarama and stuff have not been checked by anyone. No, no. And those are just like, you want to know what you're putting in your body. I mean, obviously when you're not being tested, it's less important, but like even said, like, you don't want to spend $50 on a supplement and it have nothing in it that you think you're taking. Right. So when it comes to supplements, it's like, you really want to trust the company and trust what you're taking. And then also just take only what you need. Um, yeah. 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 I hear on so many podcasts, not even just athlete ones, just regular ones where people are just like, Oh yeah. Like the handful of supplements I take every day. And they don't mean like handful, like a tiny amount. They mean handful. Like I take yes. a giant <laughs> handful of pills every oh day. And God. I'm like, there's no way that you need all of it or that all of that is, is going to do any good for you. No, uh, no. we call so. it expensive pee. It's like most of the time you just pee it out. Like it's, I don't know. I think you should really have an idea of what it is that you are taking in because usually the ingredients in isolation don't really work very well, you know? So even like when you have an iron supplement, you're supposed to take it, I believe it's like with vitamin C, no calcium, no caffeine in the morning. <laughs> like, you know, there's all of these conditions, which is why it's easier if you take it in a whole food format, because usually the conditions in a whole food are ideal for it to be absorbed. Um, So yeah, or like if you're taking vitamin D, I like to take vitamin D in like a fish oil supplement that has maybe supplemented vitamin D, but it also has um, just the natural vitamin D in there because then it's like, okay, I have a higher chance of this working, (laughs) not Mm -hmm. just, you know, and, and then it has all the, the right balance. So I believe like with vitamin D, there's um, a balancing factor, vitamin A and like, you know, if you take vitamin B12, what does that need with it for it to work properly? And what ratio am I throwing off by taking one of these without the other? That's, Mm -hmm. that's what I always wonder. So I'm not a huge fan of just taking like a multivitamin or taking like a single supplement in isolation. Cause it's just like, do you have any clue what is getting into your body and what that's doing, I guess. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Thank it's so easy to just go to the the health food store and be like, Ooh, this looks good. This looks good. This looks good. Yeah. (laughs) But I think, yeah, if you pause and you actually do, even if you're not talking to an, a a dietitian, which I would Mm -hmm. argue you probably should, if you're going down the supplement route, but Mm -hmm. if you're not going to, I think you're right. Like do at least knowing like 
exactly how you're supposed to be taking these things. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's at least a good place to start. So yeah, yeah. definitely like check for third-party testing, figure out how you're actually supposed to take the supplement. And I like, I love your point of just take what you need. Mm-hmm. I do have a funny anecdote of when I first started getting tested. Um, Ooh. <laughs> I was, so I was uh, 16. So I had just started junior elite triathlon racing. And um, so my first race, <laughs> first race as a junior elite um, was it, it ended up being like what we called Pan American Championships or whatever. So it was um, athletes from Mexico and athletes from the U.S. and Canada and maybe actually I think it was all the way through South America as well um, came up for this race. And it was just happened to be my first ever junior elite race. And I was sick going into it. And so I had taken a cold medication that had ephedrine in it, which is banned. And I didn't know because I had no background, like, you know, no, right, no you're 16. No coach had told me that I was going to get drug tested and I didn't know anything. And so I did this race and I placed second behind Paula Finley and they tested first, third and fourth. And somehow <laughs> didn't get tested. And it was so lucky because I had taken this cold medication that probably would have given me, I mean, I don't know what the punishment would have been. It's like, you know, I took ephedrine, like it's basically caffeine, but, um, or even how quickly it would have cleared your system by that. Time. Yeah, exactly. I don't, I have no idea what the punishment would have been. And it was obviously a, you know, I could have easily told them what I took. It's like, yeah, I took this, like, whatever. Um, but yeah, no, it's really eye-opening moment. And then from that moment on, like, really, you can't take much. <laughs> no, I remember um, when I was working with a pro athlete, like driving to like four pharmacies, trying to find, mm-hmm. I think it was like a Sudafed free cough medicine yeah. mm-hmm. and we could not find anything. Mm-hmm. Of course, this is like, as I'm muting my microphone here, because I just like drank down the wrong <laughs> pipe and I'm coughing up a storm. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's true. I think that like fear, uh, like after the first test, like changes how you approach it. And I don't think, you know, a lot of recreational athletes will never have that. So like, mm-hmm. it just doesn't occur to them that like the GNC, like walls of stuff are actually like terrifying places. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You really, yeah. You cannot take anything. It sucks. It sucks when you're sick because you have no options. But. Yep. You're like, Oh, I'm just going to drink another ginger shot and really hope this, uh, <laughs> this clears yeah. everything up. Great. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone else gets their NyQuil, but not me. No. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Perfect. I'm glad we, we got to touch on that. And the last big topic I wanted to unpack with you is this thing I've been thinking about a lot lately of balancing body image and performance um, mm-hmm. and body acceptance and being positive about our bodies while also wanting to strive for this athletic excellence. Just, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I know this is sort of how we get down the road to red ass, right? This is how we get a lot of these problems started, but at the same time, like as a woman athlete, I completely understand how this happens. Yeah. Uh, like mm-hmm. we said in the beginning, I'm, you know, from the generation who heard 1500 calories a day was a reasonable thing for women to, to eat Yeah, mm-hmm. and exist. So that's <laughs> been burned in my brain. Um, no matter how many times I'm like, nope, like 4,000 calories today would make a lot of sense. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah. How, how on earth do we balance 
the athletic performance side with feeling good about ourselves and, mm-hmm. and I mean, you know, optimizing body composition. Cause that is part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it is so hard and I feel like there's no way that anybody can say that they're just like always happy, you just know, kidding. like yeah. no, none of the athletes out there are, are yeah. Like ever feeling always good about their bodies for sure. Um, I think for me, one thing that I found that was helpful was I would try not to worry about my body comp ever because I knew that by the time I got to like the peak of my race season, I would be at the body comp that I had wanted. Um, or like, and it wouldn't every year I went up. That's the other thing I should say. Like every year, my body comp, like my percent body fat and my body weight went up from the time I was, I don't know, like 18 to the time I quit when I was 25. Mm -hmm. So, but only like a little bit. And of course you're going to be bigger than when you're 18, like obviously, but nobody told me that. Right. So (laughs) that's something to remember is that like, that is normal that, you know, you, everybody, all women, not just athletes gain weight from the time they're 18 to the time they're 25. But then I think like, yeah, if I just trusted the training, and I didn't try to cut calories or get to the body composition I wanted to earlier. Um, so even if it was like, if it was like May and my end of my season is the end of August or the middle of September, if it was May and I was like starting racing and didn't feel fit really, I would still be like, okay, well I'm at this given level of my training. Um, I'm not in my peak fitness. I might want to be, but I'm not. So I just have to accept that that's where I'm at. And then by the end of the summer, I always got down to, a uh, like, I guess a body comp where I felt, I felt confident and felt fit. Um, whether or not I was like even close to some of the other girls, it, it didn't matter. Cause it, for me, it felt like I was, I was fit. And I don't know if you have similar feelings where like when you were in peak, form when you had trained really hard did you feel like your body comp kind of got there on its own yeah completely I think that's Mm -hmm. that's almost like it's funny one of our first episodes we ever did was with uh Dean Golich who's coached Mm -hmm. a billion and one Olympians and he actually said something to the effect of like yeah if you do the training your body is gonna fall in line with like whatever is like the right quote-unquote like racing weight or body comp or whatever for you you, Um, so I think Yeah, so many people think they need to lead with the with the getting to the body comp, but really yeah. it's like no, lead with the training, and lead the other the stuff training. will uh, will start falling into place for yeah, sure. Yeah, I think as soon as you start cutting calories because you're trying to get your body comp down to a certain level, then you are going to um, like your training is going to suffer. So then it's like, what what's the point? Like the point of training is to get faster. You need the training, right? So it's like if you have to let the training go because you're so worried about the body comp, then you're just going to be slower. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you have to do everything you can to maintain the most training and the best recovery that you can trusting that by the end of your season or over time, like, you know, from if you do one year of triathlon training or cycling or running, you're going to get to a certain body comp, but then like the next year, you just kind of build on that. And it like your body slowly, slowly, becomes yeah the machine that you see in these other athletes right yeah Um, for sure Mm -hmm. um 
Now, this is like kind of a deviation. I was just thinking about it because as you're mentioning, like being in this like peak forum and everything, I'm like, okay, here's my one problem that me and I know several other women have with this. Our problem tends to be that like peak form tends to come after like a big training block, which is also when we happen to be like super puffy and like often are dealing with like a lot of like bloating and stuff like that because you're, you know, kind of under a lot of load. Any, any thoughts or tips on like, I mean, I don't know if there's like an actual like suggestion you have for dealing with that actually physically or just Mm -hmm. kind of how we can sort of work on that mentally. (laughs) So with the puffy and like this isn't scientifically <laughs> proven yet. so people can but i there's definitely a very anecdotally strong link between the puffiness and low energy availability and so the and the res type stuff mm. so when you're training really hard and you start seeing the poofiness that to me is usually a sign that the athlete is not eating enough Oh, interesting. So we also know that there's and gut problems are going to come with not eating enough as well. And a, and a big thing to focus on would be uh, carbs, because, yeah, we're starting to see that not enough carbs is driving a lot of the symptoms of um, low energy availability. So you can be, mm-hmm. you can be taking in not enough calories, uh, but as long as you are eating enough carbs, <laughs> you're going to be OK. It's when you cut the carbs in training, that's when you're going to start seeing a lot of these um, symptoms. And one of them in my coaching and athletic experience is the pooviness. It's so funny because I think the problem is it's, it's such a, it's such a cyclical problem because you like feel poofy. So you start cutting down on carbs and you cut out, like you're dropping calories. Yes, exactly. So maybe, maybe we can try if you start feeling poofy, increased carbs, and then see what happens. <laughs> I like uh, honestly, this is like forefront of the of the research. Nobody's talking about poofiness ever, except for me. I'm the one who's like, I was like, yeah, you'll start seeing it in your face, and people are like, that's not in the literature. And I'm like, yeah, but it's a thing. <laughs> I know if it's someone thing. could please, if you could make that the focus of your next research, that would mm-hmm. make me very happy because mm-hmm. I that that's that's something that I know a lot of people would care deeply about because it's, it's mm-hmm. such an uncomfortable thing when you're, you're training at your sort of like limit, you're really yeah. pushing everything, but then you're like putting on your, your sports bra and stuff and you just feel poofy yeah. and it's yeah. a, it's a feeling and it, it, it is like a visible thing, but it's, it just, it sucks. Yeah. It doesn't make you feel fast. It doesn't make you feel ready to perform. Exactly. Yeah, I know. And I want, and so like I did go down a, a wormhole trying to find any literature on water retention and all this. And there is some in the like anorexia literature, but it's very, um, I mean, it's there, it is there in the anorexia literature. So I feel like there is a connection and we just have to um, figure it out. But yeah, I would say maybe there's a way to prevent that through increasing carbs and and low and food in general when you're training really hard um and that is going to require you to take in more food during the training sessions um than mm-hmm. maybe you want to i think that's actually a pretty key thing too because i know for me i'm totally fine with taking in more carbs and more food outside of training that's mm-hmm. awesome that's like pancakes after training we're good i'm yeah. happy yeah um 
but definitely the in-training eating is still like personally my biggest hurdle. And I know I'm not alone. I know female cyclists, so many women and men cyclists, I know Mm -hmm. really struggle with taking in food because frankly, it's just, it's hard to eat on the bike. Like Mm -hmm. physically it is difficult to get to your thing and you know, it's hard to reach in and grab your, you know, Mm -hmm. grab your gel and open it and eat it while you're like staying with a pack. Um, Yeah. Running, it's hard to do because, you know, you're running and you're like, where's the washroom? So Mm -hmm. it's not easy, Mm -hmm. Um, but definitely important. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So that'll be like, I think the aim and then we'll see what happens. This will be our study. I like (laughs) All the listeners can try it and see what happens. It's like in that phase, when you think you might start seeing the pooviness, increase your calories and see if we can prevent it. I like it. I think that's a good, uh, that's a good thing to, to leave people with to try for next time and a fun one. Um, and on yeah. that note, um, I know last time we talked, you had a survey that you were working on. Do you have anything mm-hmm. like that going on anymore that anything our audience can help with or be checking out um, before well, we sign off? We still have the survey on the go, but unfortunately right now the website's down and I <laughs> couldn't figure it out in time. Um, so if we get it figured out, the survey is at oneathlete.ca. So all spelled out one athlete.ca and um we're trying to get like over a thousand people to fill out this relative energy deficiency kind of predictive survey so we're trying to see if we can prevent it through scores in that in the survey um but yeah right now it's down so i'm gonna try and get that up as fast as possible but um Nice. And yeah. that survey takes like a couple minutes. It is so easy to take. Yeah, I took hard. it. Yeah. I took it last time we talked. It's yeah. It's almost mm-hmm. fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You kind of get to think about some of the symptoms that maybe you hadn't thought about too, because they exactly. are exactly. Really mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. All right. And let everyone know where they can find you on the interwebs to keep up with all the stuff that you're up to. Probably the easiest is uh, like my Twitter. So super Alex underscore C is my Twitter. And I th- yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Because then from there, you'll probably get linked to my lab website where we have lab research postings all the time and all that fun stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for chatting here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. This is always so fun. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this or any of our past episodes, do us a solid and leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our book, Becoming a Consummate Athlete over at consummateathlete.com. Questions or comments? Find us over on Instagram at consummateathlete and we will see you next week.